chapters, and you've heard me mention before on our Wednesday studies, we will use the name Abram and Abraham interchangeably. Right now his name is Abram, and a couple short chapters his name will be changed to Abraham. So we will use the names Abram and Abraham interchangeably as it comes here. Now, Genesis 13 is a very interesting chapter. And if you would just look at it on its own merits, you would kind of stop and say, now why is that really that big a deal? But it sets the scene for us. And I'm going to go ahead and give away the cliffhangers right now. It gets Lot separated from Abraham, which is important. Because for Abraham to truly do what God has called him to do, he needed to be separated from Lot. Number two, it puts Lot in Sodom, which sets us up here in a couple chapters. When Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed, why is Lot in there? So at first glance, these 18 verses really stop and say, why am I studying this? This is a setup chapter for stuff later on. Remember the simple rule when it comes to studying the Bible. If God put it in there, it's in there for a reason. Now, we may not see that reason right away, and there's still some chapters at the beginning of Chronicles. I'm still trying to figure out why they're in there. But God has it in there for a reason. And so Genesis 13, God has this in for a reason. Now, the storyline of Genesis 13 is very simple. Abraham has too much stuff. Lot has too much stuff. And guess what? Abraham's servants and Lot's servants are fighting because they all have too much stuff. And so what happens is they don't have enough water for their livestock, and so it's becoming strife and tension. It's like having two of your carriage share a bedroom. That's what's going on. Now, we can learn a lot about this, how Abraham handles it, how Lot handles it. So the first thing is the problem with possessions. Now, it's not that there's something necessarily wrong with possessions. I don't want to make it sound that way at all. If it's handled properly, they've been quite the blessing. i got three passages up here. We may not read all of them, but if you want to turn to some, you can. I'm just going to look at the first one in 1 Timothy. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it there. It says this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come they may lay hold on eternal life. So basically what Paul is writing is if you are blessed in this world materialistically or with money, that God is basically saying you have an opportunity to do more with that for the kingdom of God. So being rich is not necessarily wrong. It's what you do with the finances that God has blessed you with. If you've been blessed with a good job and income has come in, God has basically said you have more of an opportunity to help spread the gospel and more of an opportunity to bless the body of Christ. Now, some of you may be sitting here and saying, finally, a verse in the Bible I don't have to pay attention to because I know I'm not rich. You can be stingy with one dollar. It's your heart. So I have walked into people's houses that have literally nothing, and they're some of the most prideful people I've ever seen on possessions, and they're some of the most materialistic people I've ever seen on possessions. I've also been in houses that I can't imagine how big they are, and they're the type of people that basically say, you want it, take it. It's not mine, it's the Lord's. It's a heart issue. So what we need to see here, and I think we see this in this lesson here with Lot and Abraham, is this idea of that the possessions don't possess me. So, Very simply put, you may look at your bank account and say, I know I'm not rich. Great. But how are you with what you do have? Is it the Lord's or is it somebody else's? Because if you look at it as the Lord's, then everything you have is for the kingdom and the glory of God. Very simply put, whatever the Lord wants to take and or use, no questions, no comments, no complaints. And that's the great thing about it. I've told you before, the rule we have in the Irvin household is this. Whatever comes into the household, it may be yours but it will be shared by everybody. We had a family day last Friday, so we thought it would be fun on this family day. 
to go out and do some stuff. So we went out and did some stuff, and on the way home, I said, you know what, we're going to do this. We'll swing by, and we'll get candy. Candy's a big deal. Now, anytime we get candy, they always ask, can we get our own? That's a big, can we get our own? So I said, yeah, we'll try to get our own. Then the next question is, do we have to share? And I'm not kidding, do we have to share? So I said, you can get your own. I said, well, we'll figure out the share thing later. So I went to the store to get candy, and we got their shopping list of candy. One wanted chocolate, one wanted fruit slices, and, uh, you know, the sugary fruit slices, not the good stuff. And one wanted circus peanuts. So here I am stopping at all places, tractor supply outside of BG, and I'm getting candy, fruit slices, and and, uh, circus peanuts. And they come in big bags, big bags. So we bring them into the car. The boys see the big bags, and their eyes get huge. Now... So we start handing out the candy a little bit in the car, and we say, you need to share. Now, all of a sudden, I got two boys in the back that are very upset by this. And I said, guys, take a look at the bag. These bags, are, they're, they're huge. And they said, but you said there's a chance we wouldn't have to share. I said, well, yeah, I thought I was getting a bag of four fruit slices. This is like 40 fruit slices. I'm not letting you eat all them. Started to cry. So I stopped. I went back. And I said, I'll take your candy. And I said to him, I said, you're telling me you would rather have a smaller amount of candy that you do not have to share rather than a whole bunch that you do have to share. Of my five children, four that could talk, two said we'd rather have more candy that we get to share. Two said we'd rather have less and not share. The two that said they'd rather have less, I said, then you've had your allotment and I will take the rest and you don't get any. Because the idea is you need to have a heart that's willing to share. It's not yours. Now, Dawn hears this and talk about irate. My goodness. She starts going on this speech of you guys don't have any money and your dad goes out and buys it with his money and all this type of stuff. I don't ever have to be a bad cop because I married a bad cop. And it's one of those things where I come across looking good. So we went home that night and we taught them Hebrews 13, 16. That's the verse they have to memorize now about being willing to share. Now, the reason I bring this up is, once again, I don't know what you have. I don't know what you own. It's not yours. You're a steward servant of God. Yes, you may be writing a check every month for that house mortgage or that car payment, but that is the Lord's. And when you look at it from that perspective, you don't grab onto anything. It's not ours. Look at the bad here, and you don't need to turn here, because I'm not going to read all of it, but but, uh, this is Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes. He simply said this. He goes, I acquired male and female servants, had servants born in my house. So my servants had servants. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. So he had everything he could want. At verse 8, he had silver, he had gold, he had treasures. He had male singers, he had female singers, he had musical instruments. He says he's great, he's excelled in all things. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. So basically, he had literally anything a man could ever want. His response, I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity. And grasping for the wind, there was no profit under the sun. I still have people that call me up and say, and I'm not kidding, they do this. They said, hey, I'm playing the lottery. Would you pray pray that I win? I say, I say, I won't. And then they always say this, I told the Lord if I win, it will ruin your life. It will absolutely ruin your life. 
Solomon said those possessions were going to destroy him. And it did. So what is the response we're supposed to have? The response is the response of Jesus in Matthew 19. And we're going to get to the lesson here. But basically, possessions aren't bad. It's what your heart on them. They can be bad. They can be good. If you look at it from the Lord's perspective. Jesus said this about possessions. And I'm not going to read all of it. Very simply put, there was a very rich man that came to him and said, I want to have eternal life. And Jesus said to him, "If you, what should I do to have eternal life is what the guy asked Jesus. And Jesus said, go sell everything you have. Now, he was not saying you can buy salvation, but he knew this man's heart was so focused on possessions. And Jesus said this, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. To the man, the possessions were more important than salvation. Now, just do a quick inventory of your heart. What is the most important thing? I sure hope it's your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that's what matters more than anything. That is the eternal possessions. And if we allow any materialistic thing to get in there between that, that's an issue. We still have idols in this world, and those idols can be possessions. We may not set them on top of the fireplace and stare at them all day, but there's something that drives us, and we just got to be careful about that. So, back now to our Genesis study. Why do I start out with this? Because look at the verses I put down here in Genesis 13. Look at this ongoing theme. Look at verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and not with him to the south. Look at verse 2. Abram was very rich in livestock and in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Verse 6. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. God is trying to make a point here. Why else would he say, verse 2, very rich, and go on to say that idea in verse 5, Lot had a bunch of stuff. Verse 6, they can't handle it. What's the result of this? Verse 7, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, and the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So you have Abram's group, you have Lot's group, you have the Canaanites, you have the Perizzites. There's just not enough space. There's not enough water. And so what happens? There's strife. Strife over what? Possessions. It's not worth it. Seriously, it is not worth it. One of my little phrases, and I know as my boys get older, and they're going to say, what do you remember Dad saying? This is what they're going to mock me for saying. But what I say to them all the time, when they start fighting over some toy at home, and they come up and they're fussing because somebody took something, I stop them and said, did somebody die and go to hell? And they'll say no. Then I say, well, then why are you crying? It's, it's let it go. And I'm not trying to downplay hell. I'm trying to say that there are eternal things that matter and there's things on this earth that just don't matter. You may have come in tonight, and you may have, in verse 7, strife. It may not be over possessions, but it's over something. And the whole scheme of eternity in heaven and hell, does it really matter? Maybe you were wronged. Maybe you're the one that wronged somebody. Maybe you need to forgive somebody. Maybe you're waiting for someone to forgive you. Maybe, I don't know. But what it comes down to is, in the whole scheme of things, what matters most is, is the person that you know and love going to heaven or are they going to hell? That's what matters more than anything. And we shared these verses on Sunday. And it's not that I'm trying to repeat everything because I did this message a week ago. But 
Same verses, Proverbs 20, verse 3. It's honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. And as we joked on Sunday, so you're quarreling with somebody right now. Good for you, that makes you a fool. The honorable thing is to say, what can I do to stop this? Look at 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 24 in your sheets. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate, here's our word, strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Too often we look at arguments on who's right, who's wrong. And guess what? Nobody wins. You may be wronged. Okay, let's forgive them and let's try to move forward if we can. You may have been wronged. You can sit all day waiting on an apology from somebody or you can say, okay, Lord, I'm going to go on. I don't know. But I just know this. Strife makes you bitter. It makes you angry. And instead of focusing on souls being saved, strife makes you focus on, am I being right? Am I the one that's right? Boy, I'd rather, I'm not worried about the right and wrong so much. What matters most is souls. And so what happens here is Abram steps up to the plate. Now, before we get to Abram's response in verse uh, 8, let's stop real quick. Any quick questions, comments about anything we've talked about thus far to get us to this point here? All right. Let's check out Abram's response, verse 8. Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. Basically, verse 9 is that classic example of there's one piece of cake left, you cut it, and I'll choose. Or I'll cut it, and you choose. Let's just work this out. Verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you court towards Zorah. Then Lot chose for himself all the plains of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So Lot gets to choose. Lot chooses the land around Sodom. And why did he choose it? Because he looked at it with his eyes. Verse 10, it sure looked good. It looked like Egypt. Now, it's been a couple weeks because of the weather, but when we went through Genesis 12, our little catchphrase was, stay out of Egypt. In the Bible, Egypt always represents the world and sin and problems. So when Abram went to Egypt in chapter 12, he got himself in trouble. So when Lot makes a decision in verse 10 and he bases it on Egypt, he gets himself in trouble. See, that's the problem when you decide to get things on Egypt. If you pick your spouse because she looks like Egypt, fine, she looks great, but there's going to be problems later on. If you try to base your house on Egypt, well, everybody else is getting a 3,000 square foot house. No, don't base it on Egypt. Everybody else is driving a 2014 car, I guess. I No, you don't base anything on Egypt. You base it on what the Lord has provided you with. And God takes care of the rest. Lot made his decision because it looked like Egypt. It looked good. And guess what happens? Lot gets in so much trouble. Chapter 14, Lot gets captured. Abram has to go save him. Genesis 19, Lot's about to get torched in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram has to go save him. Guess what? Lot goes to Egypt and loses. He loses his his sons-in-law. He loses his wife. He, He basically gained Egypt. And by the time we get to Genesis 19, we know from studying the scriptures, Lot is actually a leader in the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. So by him gaining everything, he loses it. Now, if you look at the bottom of your sheets, what happened the last time we saw somebody make a decision based on looks? Genesis 3, 6. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. I'm telling you right now, if you base it on the appearance, boy, you could get yourself in trouble. Because it's not based on how it looks. It's based on what the Lord is leading you to do. Remember when they chose David to be king, that great passage by Samuel saying how man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. Lot made a decision based on looks, looks good, looks like Egypt, I'm going. He got himself in trouble. Got himself in trouble. So what happens here, verse 12, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot is starting to make compromise, and compromise always leads to problems. Always leads to problems. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and you and your descendants forever. Now I think that's a very important point there in verse 15. And I told myself I'm not going to go back on the Israel tangent. The land that was given to Abram is an eternal promise here of this land. And so what happens is this land that everybody's fighting over now, There's no argument on who it belongs to. It belongs to Israel. Because in verse 15, God created the land. He can decide where it goes. It's their land. Verse 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So you have a promise here where God says, Abram, take this. Walk this in faith. This is yours. I'm giving this to you. And once again, look at this passage again. Verse 16. I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. At this point, Abram's pushing 100 years old. He doesn't have any kids. What an amazing example of faith. We haven't even got to this yet. Wait until we get to chapter 15. And the Lord really confirms this covenant. Boy, this is a faith thing. It really is a faith thing. Because Abram here, God keeps saying, as many as your descendants will be. Don't you think Abram ever stopped and said, descendants? I don't even have one kid. It's a faith thing. And Abram walked in faith. Look at this. And I don't want to belittle this point. Lot made a decision based on looks. Abram is being blessed by walking in faith. Boy, there's a huge, huge teaching point there. And... Look at the word study here on the back of your sheets. Last thing here. What did Lot choose? Lot chose, verse 10, the land of Egypt as you go towards Zorah. Look at Abram, verse 18. He's by the Terebeth trees of Mamre. Zorah means insignificant or smallness. Mamre means strength or fatness. Isn't that interesting? Lot is moving to the town called insignificant or small. And where does Abram end up? Strength. Fatness. Those words mean something. When you make a decision based on the looks of it, you will always become insignificant and small. When you base your decision on faith and trusting the Lord, you will always have strength. Always have strength. Now, I think it's interesting that the Lord doesn't speak to Abram, verse 14, and the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Now, we've talked about this before. It goes back to the beginning of Genesis 12. It sure looked like the Lord was telling Abram, leave your family behind. And we made the comment that by Lot coming with Abram, Lot just created problem after problem after problem. 
Lot, God bless him. And the Bible says he's righteous Lot. So I think we'll see Lot in heaven. So I've got to be careful what I say. God bless Lot. Lot was baggage to Abram. And it's not that Lot was necessarily bad. But the Lord said, Abram, I want to use you. And, and for me to use you effectively, it sure seems like Lot needs to have a little bit of a distance from you. And I'm not necessarily saying this about a person or a thing. There may be something in your life right now where the Lord is saying, you know what, let's just kind of separate a little bit from them. Now that doesn't mean that you make the sign of the cross every time they get near you and you hiss at them and say, away from me, Satan. No, because in Genesis 14, when they needed help, Abram's the first one to go help Lot. In Genesis 19, when Lot was living in Sodom about to be destroyed, Abram wanted to make sure Lot was rescued. See, I think too often as Christians, we reach this point of almost shunning. Like, I never want to deal with you again. Well, Jesus still loves them. Lot was a problem. I think he kind of was. And he gets himself into trouble in chapter 14. He gets himself in trouble in chapter 19. But Abram is still there to say, I want to help this guy. But Lot and Abram needed to have a separation here. For the Lord to really use Abram, you see this. And when Lot was separated from Abram, God said, okay... Abram, now let's go to phase two. I was reading in devotions this week a story that kind of reminded me of this. And let me read the story, then I'll come back and I'll fill you in on the point as we get ready to close. It says this. It says, A Texas billionaire hosted a feast on his 1,500-acre property outside of Dallas. He took the guest for a complete tour of his land, horse stables, and mansion. As he came to the end of the tour, the guests were ushered to the back of the mansion to plush lawns, sporting beautifully landscaped scenes and a giant swimming pool, the likes of which none of them have ever seen before. However, after closer review, the guests noted that the glistening pool was filled with huge alligators. Why do you have a pool full of alligators? One of the shocked guests asked. He says, it takes courage to make your mark in this world, answered the billionaire. So I keep this pool of alligators on my property as a sign of what courage really is. In fact, I tell all my guests, anyone who has enough guts to jump in the pool and swim safely shall be entitled to half my fortune to my one and only daughter as his wife. The guests began to laugh until suddenly they heard a splash. All eyes became fixed on one young man swimming across the pool. Incredibly, he made it across the other side and got out. The guests were astonished. The billionaire was dumbfounded. He goes, I'm impressed, he said. Son, you're entitled to half my fortune and my only daughter as your wife. Wet from head to toe, bleeding from scratches and cuts and bites, the young man replied, sir, you can keep your fortune, your daughter. What I want to know is this, who pushed me in? (laughs) Now, the reason I bring that up is this is what I've noticed in my walk and relationship with the Lord. The Lord leads me. He says, "This this is what I want you to do, James. I can either willfully go, or sometimes the Lord pushes me in. Now, usually he gives me the plan, and he usually says, take a step of faith, or something along that type of line, and I know what I'm supposed to do. See, this is what happens. People come in for counseling all the time, and their question is, I don't know what to do. And I usually say, well, what do you think you should do? Nine times out of ten, they already know what they're supposed to do. They just don't want to do it. See, we always make these things so complex. It's not complex. It's grace, it's mercy, it's love, it's forgiveness, it's repentance, it's Jesus. So, my point is this. God told Abram, separate from your family. He told him that. And now we're on our second chapter of Abram not doing it. It almost looks like God pushed Abram in the pool. I have to separate you from Lot. And then I can really start to do what I want to do in your life. 
And for me, sometimes the Lord leads me and I walk in faith. There's other times where God says, James, just go. And it's a very loving push into the pool. What I want to finish with is this. If there's something the Lord has laid on your heart, and I don't know what it is, and I'll keep it ambiguous, I don't know what it is. If the Lord's leading you to do it, just do it. That's the blessing, is just do it. Because you know what? If he really wants you to do it, and he really knows that it's important for you to do it, he eventually will probably push you in the pool. And it's always easier to go in on your own in the spirit and the willingness of the Lord, and that's where the blessing comes. Sometimes he'll push you out of love. But we need to be obedient. If the Lord has laid something on your heart, boy, just be obedient to it. With Abram and Lot, yeah, there's a little bit of a forced separation there. But at the same time, too, God was trying to fulfill his purposes. So that kind of finishes up Genesis 13. Any final questions, comments about anything that we went over here tonight with Lot, Abram, or any long thing along that type of line? All righty. If not, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to do what you've called us to do. Help us to not let the possessions possess us. And whatever you have blessed us with, it is yours. It is yours, Lord, and we want to use it for your glory. Lord, help us not allow strife to eat at us. But, Lord, help us to truly seek peace and unity through you and Jesus Christ. And, Lord, if you've called us to do something, we want to willfully walk in your path that you've called us to do. If you want to push us in the pool, Lord, then please do it in love. And we say thank you and praise you for what you've done and what you're doing. And we lift this up in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.